Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Most of the people that I have have the ability to do it, even if I prompt it. And then what happens, it defuses. It allows for the dissipation of the energy. Because what usually happens when you get overwhelmed is that you can't find a way to relax again. So you get overwhelmed, it's too much, it's a big threat, and then you check out. And I know or have an idea of how the body works to perpetuate that checking out, you know, and some of it's repression, which is connected to voluntary muscle work, and some of it's dissociation, which is connected to very early, like, I don't want to be here, I'm gone. And so each one of the person who comes out of repression, like tightening down, if they can loosen up a little bit, the actual experience of the event lessens. It's not as traumatizing. It's, I didn't like it. I'm not going to forget it, but it's not as devastating. Therapist Uncensored brings you decades of experience with interpersonal psychotherapy, relational neuroscience, modern attachment, and anything else they think will be helpful in healing humans. Now, here are your co-hosts, Dr. Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. So, if you follow this podcast, it won't be a surprise to you to know how much we love to dig into the science and learn new things. Our audience loves that too. We just kind of eat that stuff up. But sometimes that can, you know, unintentionally land us a little bit left-oriented, left brain, a little bit into our heads. If we're taking what we're learning seriously, a lot of this stuff brings us right back to our bodies, to our sinews, to our muscles, to this corpus that we live in. So we were very interested in bringing, you know, balancing that out, continuing to balance that out in our conversations, but also with our guests. This particular guest, Dr. Robert Kaufman, was actually recommended to us by a patron. We periodically meet live on Zoom with our community, our online community, and we asked, you know, who do you think is, you know, kind of the best, somebody that can really teach body-oriented work and bioenergetics, and this patron brought his name up, we looked into him, and voila, here he is. Dr. Kaufman is an international trainer in body psychotherapy for the International Institute for Bioenergetic Analysis. He's trained under Carl Rogers, Althea Horner, Robert Hilton, and he's been practicing for over 40 years. He specializes in developmental trauma with adults and is recognized as a incredible clinician and teacher. He and my co-host and Kelly are going to dive deep into how stress and chronic stress and early experiences get locked in the body at different developmental stages. They're also going to discuss the effects of that on you if you're working with clients or your clients or in your family. And they do get to specifics about how to work with freeing the trauma through body-focused work. Before we jump in, just quick mention that you too can join our bright and insightful network of Patreons in our online community. You would do that by going to patreon.com backslash therapistuncensored, or you could go to our website, therapistuncensored.com, 
And on that front page, you can look at the bottom and you'll see the link for Patreons. Okay, without further ado, I bring you Dr. Robert Kaufman and Dr. Ann Kelly. Starting back in the 70s, when I had some very profound personal experiences as a client, I was a psychologist. And from then on, I've dabbled in a lot and done training in a lot of different forms of body psychotherapy. Oh, that's wonderful. It's so great to have you on the show. I wanted to give you a little note, and that is that we tracked you down because one of our Patreon members, when we were talking about wanting to increase emotion focus, somatic body focus work in our interviews, spoke super highly of you because she's done some trainings with you. So it was kind of exciting. Then I got a chance to speak with you and I could see why she spoke so highly. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. That's sweet. Well, what is body focus treatment to begin with? What is that? There's various definitions or descriptions of it. It kind of depends on the school of body psychotherapy that you're talking about. But mostly there's something called the functional equivalence. And that is we don't separate the mind and the body. We see it as a unit. And the things that register in the mind that we used to think of as psychoanalytical or verbal therapy, it also registers in the body. And oh my God, in the last 20 years, I was thinking of being at a U.S. Association for Body Psychotherapy conference in 2000 and being on a panel. And Alan Shore, the psychoanalyst who's written a lot about right brain to right brain communication between the infant and the mother, as well as client and therapist, he was on that panel. And somebody asked him, like, why are you here? This is a conference for body workers, all the different types of body workers in the United States. And he said, because more and more of my research is taking us into the part of the body's system of experience and where and how attachment and bonding occurs and where and how trauma occurs and where it gets stored and where it ends up staying and influencing us. And it's in a part of a, the brain, we know that now, right? That isn't accessible with language. It doesn't have its own ability to interpret or to talk about it. And it's stored there in so many different ways, images, sensory, motor, The training that I had in the very beginning of my work with the body was in a therapy called bioenergetics. And it was back in the 70s. And I was trained by Alexander Lowen. But my primary trainer here in Southern California was Robert Hilton. And we focused on muscular holding patterns. Say more about that. If we think of expression as both verbal as well as motor, as well as bodily, Just use your intuitional understanding. Like they say that 80 to 85% of knowing something happens implicitly in the right hemisphere in taking somebody in and experiencing the impact of their tone, of their feelings, of how they relate to you. That's just happening automatically. That's why people say to me, like, why should I bring the body into therapy? I laugh, I go, body's in therapy, whether you like it or not. What you need to do is you need to figure out the language, how it's communicating, how what it's telling you and what it's doing. Yeah, how to access it, right? Yeah, if you don't, a perfect example, this would be a perfect example. It's an extreme example. And I've seen it many times. I've seen well-known people. I saw Alex Zerner-Lowen do it, Bob Hilton do it. I've seen Peter Levine do it. Somebody will come up in a demonstration, like volunteer as a client and say, hey, I want to be a client. And he'll say, come on up and sit down and 
I've seen all three of them go, uh, I don't need to hear the story. I can see what's going on already. And I'll be damned if, you know, as you watch them work, everybody's kind of accessing the body differently. Some people are kind of looking at how the nervous system works. Some people are looking at how the energy and the breathing patterns and how the muscles react to different topics or subject matters or things that are coming out. And they're working it without having the narrative. Like, how could they do that? It's fascinating. Isn't it fascinating? Mm -hmm. And so long, long time ago, I had to come up with an experimental form of therapy for an introduction to psychotherapy class. It was sort of psychotherapy 101. And so the guy in front of me had a friend who was a bioenergetic teacher, not a trainer, but he taught bioenergetics. And he looked back at me and said, you want to do bioenergetics? And I didn't even know what he was talking about. And I said, sure. So we got together with this guy and there about six students and we got a, a series of lectures and some demonstrations. And then in front of the class, the six of us went up and presented on bioenergetics. And I understood it in theory, and I understood how powerful it was to begin to look at defenses. Everybody has defenses where they defend against usually anxiety-filled experiences. Like if reaching out creates anxiety, you could say, well, a person's scared to reach out, you know, and they're withdrawing. I see that, and I can label it, but it's also happening in the body, and there's certain ways in which the muscles will contract pull back, tighten up, and influence how much of an impulse or an expression or a longing will come forward. And it's so underneath the surface, right? That we're not talking about a conscious awareness. We're talking about the, yeah. clen the clenching of the body or the body experience and how much it influences and impacts the entire experience that you're watching. Absolutely. And you can kind of say, let's pretend as I'm getting to know you, I don't know you very well, that you and I got connected and we started to feel freer with each other, safe and trusting. And you were laughing and I was making jokes and everything. And then as you were opening up and you were thinking maybe, God, Bob, I, I sort of enjoyed this interview and I'm really feeling more open to you. I understand you and I'm feeling a connection. And then I had you tighten your jaw as hard as you could and look at me. And what most people will say is, wow, that openness went away. It went away. What do you mean it went? Well, I, just, I don't feel quite as, let's say, excited or interested or curious. I feel sort of a pulled back quality. So when people come in and they want to open up, my husband just, you know, he's not there for me. I go into these feelings. I want to talk. I want to have a deeper kind of intimacy with him. What I see, I see in the body where there is the pathways for intimacy, openness in the eyes, an invitation in the eyes, the jaw relaxed, the throat open, the breathing deeper. I see them all constricted or I see some form of resistance in the body, in the holding the way the body is that prevents that person from getting the thing that they want that they're projecting out onto their spouse or their mate as the cause of the lack of it. Makes sense? Yeah, it does. And I love what you're saying. Often when we think we're trying to search for something out in the world and we can't have it, we forget so much to look at what is going on inside our own body and our request for it, our need for it, and how we're communicating, right? So here this woman's coming to you, and I see this all the time in my office as well, where somebody was really saying, I want this intimacy, this openness, and they really believe that they're right there, body open, and it's their partner's resistance. And you can see 
through all of this training that you've done, the signs of the closed offness in the person themselves. Right. Yeah, that's really beautiful. So if you looked at that, I'll take you on a tangent so that those of the listeners can understand this. This has to do with motor development and when motor development happens. So you could say to me, what does that mean? And I would say segments of the body, let's go with this, the eyes, ocular segment, the jaw, shoulders, chest, diaphragm, arms, triceps, biceps. A lot of the motions and movements in the body early on in the child, in the baby and the child are reflex driven. The voluntary muscular structure in a given area isn't really myelinated enough to come under voluntary control. So we're having reflexive responses very, very early. And as these muscles come online, it's usually on a timeline of developmental shifts and changes. But as a muscle, let's say saying no, starts to come online, and it's in the triceps and in the shoulders, and I know that at a certain age, a child starts to feel the ability to express it with their hands, almost like pushing away response. But if there's trauma to that expression, sometimes if it's just beginning to happen, and there's an inundating response, a negative response from the environment, there'll be a giving up and a surrender and a kind of a collapse. And you'll see them go into a little bit of dorsal vagal shutdown. And then you'll see the body itself be flaccid. They call it a hypo. There's not much tension. And so there's a giving up of that expression. They've had to learn to give that up. When any child comes towards you to get a need met, if you're welcoming of that, and responsive in an attuned way, it kind of gives it juice. You're like sort of giving them permission, like my son would come and run and he'd have something to show me and he'd want my attention and I would give him my attention. Maybe I was talking to my wife or somebody else. Because what I want him to do is I want him to feel like his whole body can be invested in that expression. He's screaming, he's running, he found a frog in the backyard, he wants to show it to me and I'm responding to that. You could say that, okay, you're a parent and you're being thoughtful and sensitive and attuned to your child, but I'm also wanting to support his excitement in his body. I don't want to say no, because he should know by now that the muddy frog that he's bringing in the living room with the brand new carpet is going to cause all kinds of havoc because he won't understand that. And when I say no, it'll force him into a place in his body, both in the muscular structure as well as in the nervous system. It's called a dorsal vagal shutdown. And what happens is the child freezes and then there's a buildup in the energy that doesn't get to express. And that buildup is shame. It's just what shame is. That's what shame is. So people say to me like, oh, you have to discipline your kids. And I kind of shake my head and I say, you know, I'm gonna disagree with that. You have to contain your children. You have to work with them but they'll get through the stage where they won't need to do that. But if you interfere with it in an intrusive way, they'll be stuck in that pattern even as they grow older. So they won't be able to maybe come forward with joy or excitement or energy about something. And they'll, they'll come to me and they'll say, I don't know what's happening. I just, I can't get myself going. And then we trace it back. So I see that blocked in the musculature in a particular way and in the nervous system. And I know it's going to come in to the transference. It's going to be there in my relationship. So I may be getting way ahead, but that's kind of 
how I work with it. So going back to my point, different muscles have to do with different capacity to express. So a newborn baby, it's kind of like the right to exist is there in the eyes and they're looking and there shouldn't be any highly intrusive, invasive, extreme reactivity towards them. And then there's also sucking that happens and you can see it and you want that impulse to be there. And most people don't see it that way. They'll just go, you know, I take care of my kid and I hold him, my baby boy, and I feed him and everything. But each one of those things is allowing the body to developmentally express in a motor, in a sensory way, something that I would call, Lowen calls it a, a right, the right to exist, the right to need, the right to say no. And when that particular automatically developmental process, you know, in socialization is forming, the environment needs to be responsive to it. It kind of frees up the flow. If they get resistance or blocked by the environmental response, two things happen. They become adaptive to keep the parent in contact. And then some of the energy goes into constricting in the body. And then that body constriction, you get trained and you can kind of see it. So I'll say something like, can you say that to me? And then relax your jaw. And then I see a little girl with embarrassment. She goes, no, you know, and then I'm responding in the transference to that little girl who locked the jaw so as to cover that embarrassment. Or you might get a no, or you might get fear in the eyes. They open the jaw and the eyes go dead. And you think, oh, wow, gone. Started to kind of reach out, but gone. So for me as a body psychotherapist, going back way back to what you said, I do regular therapy. I do develop a relationship, a therapeutic alliance to counter-transference, transference. I work within that framework. But I'm also looking to the language of the body, the ways in which the body is responding. And the more you work with the body, the more you're paying attention to the body. I've heard people say the body doesn't lie. And there's 90% truth in that. The body doesn't lie. The body really lets you know. If somebody says, hey, I like you, and they have anger in their eyes, or they have some certain things going on in their body, ah, there's a mix there. And so that's how I work with it. Well, it sounds like also the process of being able to observe where the individual is stuck, or like you said, the tightness or the inability to say no, you're able to tap into some of the things that happen pre-verbal. So when you're coming into therapy and you're trying to say, I don't know why I don't feel like I can say no, you're able to tap in to maybe the developmental process of where they got blocked or how they got blocked, where they're not going to have memories of this. They're not going to be able to say, well, you know what happened is my mom was really, really anxious. And because she was anxious, every time I got out of her comfort zone, she had a big reaction, right? We're not going to have that memory at most of us anyway, at 15 months, 18 months. And so you're able to tap in to this pre-verbal process by really attending to the body and attending to what you see at the visceral level. Perfectly put. It's great. And the founder of body psychotherapy, it's been around for a hundred years. And somebody was telling me about Janet who worked with Freud and how he worked with trauma and how he was very sensitive to certain things going on in the body. But one of Freud's followers and a really brilliant student of his who was with him in the 20s in his major study group was Wilhelm Reich. What Reich did was he saw lots of clients in a free clinic there in Berlin, and he began to note similar body posture, similar body structure correlated to similar issues. 
So he began to notice what a depressed chest looked like, like somebody who's depressed and that depression affected the respiratory function and the full inhalation of a breath. So when you see kind of a chest that's concaved and coming forward, there is inside of that person, and this is a probability statement because sometimes it isn't true. My experience doing it for 45 years is there's usually crying and blocked longing that never was met. If you watch somebody expand in an act of reaching out, let's say using their arms and hands, and there's an inflation in the chest, just taking the air in and moving. And if that is not responded to, you know, all the stuff from Spitz and all the stuff from Bowlby, there's going to be protest and there's going to be anger and protest and then crying and then withdrawal. But what they don't talk about is what happens in the body. And what happens is there's a surrender to that expression. And what happens is they're giving up the expression by blocking the movement that would complete that expression. And when they block that movement, it contorts the body in an area that should be open with the joy, open with the trust and the spontaneity of moving outward. So the block ends up also being in the body and you can work with the depression and later that gets integrated in, but they now don't have to risk the rejection of reaching out to somebody who isn't there in the environment because the chest will tighten and prevent the full investing into the arm, shoulders, and front of the trunk. So the body has learned the act of protection. We talk about that a lot when we're talking about, you mentioned, Bobby, the attachment strategies that we develop, they develop in the body, they develop through neuroceptions, they develop for an important reason. And to really visualize, I wish all our listeners could see you as you express it, because I can get the feeling as you're doing like that, that if you are rejected through doing this excited expression, right. and it happens, you know, of course, not once or twice, but over again on, on a chronic right. level, that right. that feeling of rejection and that feeling of the longing not being met, I hear what you're saying. It's like you develop your own protection strategy in your body that you don't even know you've developed that part of inhibition. Exactly. And it comes online if it's pre-verbal and before the, your left brain or your conscious awareness languaging is, is online, it just forms very quickly. And then underneath it is a lot of the pain about it and the avoidance of going there because you know, the thing you needed and got rejected isn't a place you want to revisit because what will come up is the pain of that loss. And so the body closes down and says, we're going to protect you. And it's your defensive system. And I mean, Reich, and sort of the father of somatic psychotherapy, just called it armoring, just like you said. He says, there's armoring in different segments of the body. And I was like, what does that mean? And he would say, well, there can be armoring from rigidification, and then there can be armoring from collapse and resignation. So usually the armoring from rigidification has a little bit of protest in you started getting held and cared for, and then somehow she pulled away or something happened or she went back to work, and you're really angry about the loss of it, but you got enough to sustain it, and now you're just more rigid and more tight in your feelings about that being taken away. If it gets taken away early in the cycle of that, then there's a giving up of even having the right to it. 
So when you work therapeutically with someone who lost the capacity to even protest the loss and they've given up completely, sort of like you're starting over, planting seeds, developing a relationship, supporting them. And all of that happens in the same way that every therapist does therapy. I talk a lot, but what I bring a lot of different ways of looking at what's going on and then a lot of different allowable expressions. Because if I told you what I did, you'd be going, oh my God. And then a lot of techniques that I'll use. Let me just segue here. Bioenergetics has been around since the 50s. And it was based in part on a drive model, a very early Freudian model of the id and the libido and the drive. And the energy idea was that the body has energy because it's driven to express in certain ways. So that model was a little bit more like classical psychoanalytical therapy. And that is, it was a one person model. Martha Stark used to say that there's the authority and there's the doctor and he kind of knows what you need and he kind of directs you in a certain way. And some of those very qualities were there with Lowen. Mm -hmm. So modern bioenergetics, primarily it includes working within the context of the relationship, kind of intersubjectively. Okay. And then secondarily, rather than leading, following and allowing the body to guide you. Let me give you an example of a session. A woman comes in, she's a very high energy woman, and she got enough from her mother to have what I would call her own ability to have a relationship was fair. She was anxiously attached with some security attachment. She had a very close relationship with her father, but his demands upon her because he had so much energy and he was the center person in the family. She began to identify because she needed his approval. And so she would go to him and again and again and again, he would challenge her and she would meet that challenge. So when she came in, she had a strong posture. It wasn't like a soldier or somebody standing at attention, but it was definitely like an athlete. It wasn't quite barrel chested, but it was definitely out. It was not concaved. It was not collapsed. So she came in and I began to get her history and it took three or four or five sessions and we began to develop rapport and she was appreciative of me. All the things that I was doing to create what is it you want to call holding environment, a working alliance, just something where she could trust me. And I had said, some of the things that I'm going to do is going to be oriented towards bringing you into awareness of your body and how it's involved in some of the issues that you came to therapy for. Primarily, like I'm having a problem with relationships with men. And you could work that verbally and you could develop in the transference a reenactment and then you could offer new solutions or new reactions and try to update the memory. Hey, I'm here and I'm caring. And even when you get upset, I'm here listening and I really want to be connected. You could do that verbally. But because I work with the body, I wanted her to feel it in her body. She knew I did body work. I had her stand up and I had her get her body into the posture that she would have if she was standing in a grocery line at a store. And she stood strong. I mean, she was strong. And I said, wow. And what I was thinking, what was going on in my mind is, wow, there's a very strong chest and there is anger and aggression blocked. Now, you could say to me, how did I know that? I'll come back around to it in a second. So I had her stand and I have a mirror in my office and I come on over here. 
let's call her Mary. Mary, come on over, Mary. And I had her stand next to the mirror. And I said, when you look at it and see your posture in the mirror, what expression comes to you? Like just anything. The first thing that comes, she said, confident. I said, perfect. If you're not aware of your body and the different postures your body will go in, how can we make any shifts or get an understanding? Because for her, confidence meant, okay, I'm fine. I don't have a problem. Didn't connect that position and the way she held her body with anything having to do with difficulty in relationships. So I, I had her do it and I said, all right, can I come over? And when you do this, you have to really have a good therapeutic alliance. You have to be clean and not dysregulated. You have to ask for that. I said, can I mold you a little bit? And what I was going to have her do was I was going to have her go into a stronger barrel chested posture and then feel that. They were exact words. Shit, I really like that. So we felt that. And I knew that the sequence would go into a couple of sessions, but I really liked that. And I said, so what does it feel like a person that stands like that? What is that? She said, I can handle anything. And she could. She was like a big wig in a company. So I said, perfect. By then I had told her how important witnessing the actual physical activities that we were doing, which rule number one with me is you don't do anything unless you talk about it and be aware of sensations and emotions and muscle movements and breathing. You're always taking it back to the internal witness, the one that's going to process it. So I have her stand. Then I say, now I'm going to do something. I'm going to make contact with you and I'm going to sculpt your body a little bit. And she said, okay. And I put my hand on the back of her shoulders and the other hand on the front, on the top of the chest. And I said, follow my hands. And I pushed her into somewhat of a collapsed position. As she was going in it, first thing, you know, I'm not sure I like this. And I go, okay, well, hang tight. Let's just go into it and then just sit with it. So she sit with it. Eh, This does not feel good. And so she started to talk about the thing that I knew that she would feel or that she did feel as she started to tighten her chest and become like a rigid soldier posture. I knew what it was going to be. I knew what, I know who it was because I've done it for a zillion years. So I said, okay, come back to that strong barrel chested posture. How does that feel? She said, it feels great. So much better. So what I'm doing is I'm taking apart, deconstructing what is a posture that I know developmentally formed. She wasn't born with that posture and that it developed over time. So I had her go in it and then out of it and then feel it. I feel like I'm a doormat. I just feel like a pussy. I just can't get anything done. I don't like it. Okay. So then what I did, that session sort of ended and I came back to it the next session. And I said, I'm going to reacquaint us with this process. And I did. And then I, I said, I want you to stand in the room and go into the strong posture. And so I stood all the way on the other side of the room. I had her feel her body. She's there. She's in a workout. Some people come and they work out like with gym clothes. She's vibrating a little bit because I've been working the legs in order to create a little bit deeper breathing because it sometimes is helpful. It helps highlight sometimes emotion and definitely movements in the body. So she's there. And I stand all across the room and I say, what I need you to do is process how you feel about me coming towards you in slow motion. And when you feel like it's too close, like I could be 20 feet away, I have a 20 foot office, or I could be a foot away and different people respond differently. Just put your hands up and say no. 
or that's enough. And so she got her chest out and boy, I got like within three feet of her. And she was just smiling, looking at me confidently, energetically in her eyes, making contact. We were laughing about something. So I took her back and I said, great. And, and then I, what I'm short-circuiting and telling of this is I spend a lot of time tracking what's going on in the body so that they start to have memory on a physical level of that right brain muscular sensory pattern. Like Peter Levine in Somatic Experiencing, he's always tracking either motor or sensory in the body because that's where the trauma gets stored and that's the language of PTSD trauma. But in bioenergetics, I also want to know that they can be more and more attuned to the variations. So then what I do is I put her in the position where her chest is forward. She doesn't like it. So I take a step or two towards her. First time I was three feet away. The second time I was 15 feet away. And she said, stop. And so then she began to describe how horrible it would be to be like this and have someone like me come and see her this way. So we just spent the rest of the session processing that. Wow, I can feel the vulnerability. Right, I can work off of that. So we processed that and it could have come up in regular therapy and I'm sure it would have over time. A good psychodynamic therapist would have picked up that there's some kind of conflict about getting close to a male and they might've been able to understand it and interpret it, but I needed to get it online somatically because it's really different when you have something that you experience rather than you understand. So one of the issues of psychoanalysis is they're working towards the experience. They're taking a long time because they're cortical. They're talking about it, but rather than experiencing it in the body. If she's only processing, it's like, of course, why wouldn't I want to be in a confident position? And, you know, like, absolutely. But, but there's this way that she can actually feel her vulnerability in that position right. and can feel not only of course, anyone in that kind of position feels more vulnerable. It sounds like she got in touch with this deeper level of fear of it. Because as you put her in it, and I was kind of imagining being her the whole time that you're talking about, and I imagined, and that's why I said I could feel her vulnerability. It's just right. that she can physically feel her vulnerability. She could relate that physiological experience to different experiences in her world currently. Remember, we started with there was blocked aggression, and when she's put in a position of that vulnerability by accident or circumstances, that there's a protector in there, there's a reaction in there of aggression. And I could see it in her jaw, and I could see it in her neck, and I could see it in her back. And I'm making notes and jotting it all down because I know which parts of the body that the energy that fuels aggression let's say using your arms and your hands to express it in some way to say no, to grasp, to push, to hit, to grip. I know where those are. And so I'm just watching and those parts of the body were really tight, which indicates there was some holding there. And what I didn't have to do and what I would have done with somebody else is I would have said, let's go back to the posture again. And I'd like you to imagine somebody standing here in the room with us. And you can kind of see where I'm going. And who I brought in was her dad. She felt like going into that collapsed posture in front of her dad. At first, she was just aware of his shaming of her. And then she actually cried in that other session where I just had her kind of feel it in her body without bringing the image. Like when I was walking towards her, I didn't have to bring the father in. So right then and there, you have a core issue. 
that's not an issue. If I've got a little bit of anxiety, I'm stage frightened, or I've been feeling bad, you know, and you can problem solve all those things and you can come up with all kinds of different ways to do it. But now I'm in the actual somatic experience of what this person's going through. So the other day when I was talking to her, we were talking about a relationship that didn't work and something. And I said, well, you got that from your dad. And she said something she'd never said. She said, my dad hated me. You got that, right? Well, this is someone she identified with. He's very successful. He's no longer alive. But I was struck by that response. And we had been working with just a little bit of expression and feeling of assertiveness, self-protective assertiveness in the hands. And then the boyfriend came up and then some comment, I said, was your dad, would he have responded, my dad? And it was just like, perfect. So what we're trying to do is get awareness of the body and the holding in the body. And then we're trying to get it linked to the developmental tasks that didn't get completed, the pain of that, And then, you know, part of it is she became very strong. And so she's very attractive when she's strong, but she's not happy. She doesn't have the intimacy wants. The intimacy probably involves a compromise between her strength and the collapse, somewhere in between. Would it be accurate that she sees vulnerability as collapse? Absolutely. Right. As a, what did she say? Pussy. She said Mm. like a doormat. I would tease her because I'm the kind of therapist that I am is I'm playful and, and I, I like to talk about what's going on. Because when you work with a body, you don't have to kind of contain or mask the transference as much as when you're working with a body. You can kind of say, yeah, and and feel your jaw. What's your jaw say? Somebody said to me this afternoon, (laughs) we're opening up her jaw. And so she's getting ready to do a TED talk. And when they called her to do it, she got scared and cried. And she said, thank you, Bob. Thank you. And then she cussed and I laughed. And she was doing it in play, but it was like, okay, how's that feel? She said, felt good telling you that. And where do you feel that? I feel it in my shoulders and my chest is tight. Okay, can we hang out with that a little bit and see what comes up? And then what came up was something that she probably didn't have a chance to do. She said, I'm scared about what we're doing. I said, I know, I know. And then I don't want to reenact and then re-traumatize, but I do want to reenact and then deconstruct it a little bit and relate it to things in the body over time. And then we can make shifts in the body How do you use the body then in the transformational process? If you have a little bit of time before your body contracts, you have a little bit of like a window of opportunity to have a different experience. So I'll say to somebody, so if you do that, could you just let your shoulders drop? And she'll go, I don't know. I don't know. And so we're working it back and forth. And then the shoulders drop at some point, the fear of what she was dealing with developmentally has been diminished enough through working on the body, her knowing that the body will contract and act first. So the nervous system in the body is like going to act just super fast, way before you think about it. But if you can catch it, you can kind of have opportunities to go, it wasn't so bad. Fucking A, it's not too bad. You did it with your jaw open and shoulders down. And the very thing you thought that was going to happen didn't happen because when you brace yourself to prepare for it happening, because the trauma is stored in in that body in different ways, you're creating the circumstances for it to be felt like it's happening. You're recreating it. What you're describing is that you're helping them recognize how much they're recreating that young experience and the active and reaffirming to themselves those assumptions. And so if they can catch and really feel their jaw tightening and their self-clinching and instead of then making the association to what's happening in the environment is making me feel this way. 
Right. They can feel that they're bringing that tension, that clenchedness into the environment, into the experience. And I can just see how much that awareness can be so healing. So whenever you go back and you get somebody identified and linked with the body and the patterns in the body, because somebody comes to my office and they have a panic attack. And I'm thinking, great, 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 great. I'm so glad that they had a panic attack and I can work with them. By the time I get them in touch with the different things that are going on in their body that they label as a panic attack, they get to the point where they'll go, well, it's not so bad right now. So what did we do that made it turn from really freaked out? Because the first thing they'll say is, oh, no, 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 I don't want to go in my, I don't want to, that'll make it worse. And I'll just bear with me, bear with me. Come on. Just where do you feel that? I tighten my throat, my throat. Just hang out with it a little bit. Because the label panic attack is really about different things that are happening in the body. And if the person can get in touch with that a little bit and stay with it. Now, you know, somebody can have a full-blown panic attack when I worked at a hospital and, you know, you have to get a med. But most of the people that I have have the ability to do it, even if I prompt it. And then what happens, it defuses. It allows for the dissipation of the energy. Because what usually happens when you get overwhelmed is that you can't find a way to relax again. So you get overwhelmed, it's too much, it's a big threat, and then you check out. And I know or have an idea of how the body works to perpetuate that checking out, you know, and some of it's repression, which is connected to voluntary muscle work, and some of it's dissociation, which is connected to very early, like, I don't want to be here, I'm gone. And so each one of the person who comes out of repression, like tightening down, if they can loosen up a little bit, the actual experience of the event lessens. It's not as traumatizing. It's, I didn't like it. I'm not going to forget it, but it's not as devastating. You're bringing this historical body experience that was very traumatizing into the present tense and helping them re-experiencing the body's experience as not traumatizing. Is that what you're saying? Like to get, wait, wait, get in touch with that. You're able to handle that now. So you're bringing it into the present and out of the freeze mode or the historical mode that the body was conditioned into and then helping them become aware that, oh, wait, you can handle that. You are handling that. Is that what you're saying? Kind of getting it out of an experience of trauma in the body. Right. Right. So if somebody said to me, what are you tracking? Like I wrote down eyes, direct eye contact, averting eye contact, blinking, blank stare, sleepiness, logging expression, scanning vigilance, scanning fearful, dilated eyes, curious, open, rage eyes, hatred eyes, tears, sparkly, warmth, affectionate. So I'm looking at just eyes. Then I could look at expressions in the jaw. Then I could look at expressions in the chest. We had a workshop with Alexander Lowen back in the day he came to the workshop, two-day workshop in L.A. It was down in Orange County, which is southern part of L.A. He brought a slide projector back in the 70s, and he said, I'm going to show you these clients. Everything's blacked out except their eyes. I want you in your intuitive way, there was about 50 of us there, just to say what you see and write it down. So we'd look at a set of eyes, and he would flash it on the screen. What do you see there? And he already had an idea of what it was you see. So, well, you see angrier. But do you see quizzical anger? And then do you see kind of a blankness? And by the time we got done, I was looking at everybody's eyes. I couldn't look at eyes ever again the same. And it was the same thing with every body part. 
because he was picking up stuff. And that's what you learn when you train as a body therapist. Like if you watched a session, let's say a session with somebody was on a table and we were working on shock and you were standing behind me and I would say, did you just notice the increase in breathing and how it shifted from the chest to the diaphragm and to the stomach. And you might go, oh, no. Did you notice the twitching in the right hand? And are you noticing what's happening underneath the eyelids if the eyes are closed? Or do you have a sense in yourself? Because I feel through my hands and I also feel through my own body when I'm with somebody, I can kind of read what's going on. It's a resonance that's going on. So if you do it enough and you get training in it and then you have it done on you, and then you start noticing the shifts and the changes, you know, then what you notice is, wow, I had never thought of using this pathway or this channel to work on these issues. I'm a you know, psychodynamic, a trained in self-psychology, object relations, and I didn't want to give that up. And everybody who starts to use the body, they're going to be their own version of body therapy, and they're going to be drawn to different types of schools and techniques but it's essential that you include it because it's already in there and it's operating. And, you know, it's just like, would you not take a history from somebody? That's the opposite side. Of course, I want a complete psychological history. What happened then? What happened then? What happened then? For me, I also have to take a body inventory. I have to ask them what's happening. You ever heard of the journal Voices? It was the American psychological, American psychotherapy something. And somebody gave me a box of journals and there was an article in one of them by Vince and he was the editor and it was 1976. And he said, I'm not sure about body psychotherapy. Uh, I like Fritz Perls and Gestalt because they include parts of the body. And I think Eugene Gentlin, who does focusing where you just, all the progress you make in therapy has to be linked to a sensation you work on your issues by going to a felt sense of the issue. And he said, I know those two, but I'm not sure about body psychotherapy if it really can get you anywhere. But he said, what I will do is I'm going to list 27 events that happened to my body. He had surgeries when he was little. He drowned three times. And for me, I'm just like, wow, I'm surprised even functioning because all of those events, you get through it, you survive it, leave stuff in the body. They leave it in the nervous system. You're dysregulated. They leave it in different parts of the muscular structure. And it's just like, I was just so surprised. And he listed them all. And I thought that was in 76. Today, anybody who works with trauma because of all the realization that trauma is in the body and early trauma because of the immaturity of the autonomic nervous system registers the same as the PTSD single event traumas that we experience in a car crash or being in Afghanistan. That little baby doesn't really have the skill set. All they can do is dissociate. And more and more you see repression as secondary and dissociation as primary. So if you're working with people in early childhood development, and you don't have an understanding of how dissociation shows up in the body, you're missing a lot. You know it. I mean, I've listened to your podcast and I love what you're doing. And you have enough people on that really focus on the neurophysiology of attachment, of trauma work. And so you want to you wanna know that because that's a body process as well. I love what you're adding in this episode because 
we were talking, you know, again, to kind of come back to the neuroception. And I think the best title of a book ever is The Body Keeps the Score. And this is what you're talking about. It's like, this is imprinted in the body. It really is. We have a memory of every single thing that's ever happened to us. And how you're doing a beautiful job articulating for our listeners is how our body stores it and where our body stores it. And that it really does store it and is manifesting. And even for listeners out there, it might be kind of interesting to kind of stop for a moment and think about what you're gaining from this conversation. Just like think about how you're holding your body, right? Of course, I'm the one having to sit here and see Robert look at me and go, oh my gosh, what is my body doing? What is she interpreting? (laughs) But what I'm saying is like, just think about your own body for a moment. And do you feel your stomach clenched and the eyes and some of the things that you're mentioning, you know, like, can you feel the sense of your stature and where you hold your tension? And be curious, be curious about what it's representing. And it feels like this work gives such an avenue for not only deeper insight of where you're holding it and why, but an avenue for knowing how to transition it and transform these things that are beyond our conscious awareness, how to move it. That was well put, and that's exactly what you do. And when you do that, it has kind of a profound impact. A lot of people are surprised. And the body has within it kind of a particular set of either images or constrictions, but it doesn't have quite the awareness of the meaning of it. So the meaning is missing. Okay, so let's say you were upset and you were little, and you're upset now when you were little. Who would you turn to? So they'll go, I, you know, I had a nanny that I really loved, Maria. I go, okay. So can you envision Maria? Everybody can do that. That's talk therapy kind of one-on-one, right? People are just kind of doing that. So what I do is, is, is I go, I'm going to have you do some things in your body. Because I'm thinking, what does a little four-year-old do when they turn to Maria because they're upset and scared? They're going to run towards Maria or move towards Maria, but they're not going to have their arms to their side and their head down. They're going to have their eyes up. They're going to have their mouth kind of open a little bit, and then they're going to reach out. So I'll just have a person, slow motion, reach out to Maria. And then you watch them and you're going, wow, the eyes went dead, or now here comes the tears. And then the crying happens, and then they cry, and then they'll say, I just didn't know that was in there, man. I just didn't know that. So there would be a range of emotions depending on what developmental issue And so finding somebody that can work that way is critical because I would never recommend somebody, we could talk about touching for an hour, when we touch, how we touch, what we touch, can we touch, but really having experience. So I was talking to somebody, um, she's a psychoanalyst and worked in bioenergetic therapy, and she's in the relational school of psychoanalysis that's based in New York with Stephen Mitchell, and there's several other people who are the founders of it. And she said to me, if I hadn't experienced it, I would think this is really woo-woo or heading for trouble because you know the body and it ends up, if you're touching, then it's going to end up sexual and then we're going to have ethical and we're going to be, and I said, but you had it, right? She said, I did. I had someone that held me. And what was that like? She said, I never had that experience ever before. And I said, did you profit from it? And then she just smiled at me. She was on a panel and she said, oh, yeah, and that was it. And so here's a well-known psychoanalyst, read a bunch of books. She really confirmed that. Now, she was doing what she enjoys, and she wrote a book on relational psychoanalysis and the body, or she co-edited it with a guy. But you could find articles by people who have been through body psychotherapy. And often they'll just talk about 
the shifts and the changes. It strikes me that it's really important to get some really deep training, you know, not only the understanding of what you're seeing, but before you attempt to sort of engage any kind of physical level with a client or to think about making sure any therapist you go to has deep training. Because as you start to access the body in that way, you have such a way of several different things I'm thinking about, like the opening up of the regressions that are going to come out. Absolutely. And somebody needs to be deeply trained and to be able to deal with what could come up. And it's also striking me as, you know, how to approach the touch in a way that feels very safe in a therapeutic environment that doesn't get misinterpreted or sexualized and that feels very communicated. And I imagine that's a big part of the different types of trainings. Yeah. And thinking of talking to you, I said, okay, if people ask me about touch, first off, you can do somatic work very effectively without touch. You see that like in somatic experiencing Peter Levine's coursework, you can do a lot of work without touch. And psychotherapists in some states can't touch. They're not allowed to unless they have a license as a masseuse. And so what I wrote down was get training in it, receive it as a client. And then when you get training in it, you will receive the touch. And if the therapist or the trainer touches you in a particular way, as you can tell from what we were talking about, if I touch you in the upper back, it's different than the touch in the middle back, definitely different than touch than the lower back. If I touch the back of the head, it's different, different sides of the body. So touching, if you're just kind of generically learning about it means, and I remember one of my supervisor object relations, a brilliant woman, we were sitting talking and I sort of said to you, so you know I touch. And she said, of course you do. But she said, you're so trained in it. And she was a psychoanalyst. So I said, do you touch? And she looked one way. Nobody in the room, right? Looked as if there was anyone over there. And looked <laughs> as if there wasn't anyone. And then said, I do, sometimes. And I said, tell me why. She said, in limited, goal-directed, clearly delineated interventions, Bob. And I said, perfect. I do the same thing, except I kind of do it a lot, and I know about it, and I work with it. And that was a comment of hers. And she was a very loving person. It was like, people touch, but if you're trained in it, it's a completely different thing. Anything that you start to get into. In one of our training programs here in California in bioenergetics, I think it's the third year that you can start being clinical, but you have to go through two years. And then we have a program where we just inform you. It's like eight months, five hours on each Saturday, where we just talk about different topics so that you can sort of, you know, kind of sweeten your taste of like, okay, I want to see more what's going on. So for somebody that that might be out there interested in first receiving that kind of training, what would you recommend? Where would you recommend them to go to kind of find out information on that? And for individuals out there that might be wanting to see a bioenergetic therapist, what would you recommend? There's a United States Association for Body Psychotherapy, and they have formed an umbrella group for all of the different schools of psychotherapy. Some of them are psychoanalytically oriented, the Reichian ones, bioenergetics, but they've all sort of morphed and modified over the last 10 or 20 years to include the neurophysiology work of trauma, like Vessel van der Kolk and the traumas in the body. And they've also incorporated the stuff of Alan Shore. So Hakomi is one very much more mindfully oriented, but they use body types, biosynthesis, I have training in something called Bodynamics, and it's a very wonderful system. 
bioenergetics, where I am in California, there's a Southern California Bioenergetic Institute. You could go on that and somebody will call you back. Somatic experiencing is another form. Somatic experiencing is kind of interesting because it's a technique. Even though I use a lot of what I've learned in psychotherapy, it's not a school of psychotherapy. Hakomi is, sensory motor, Pat Ogden's work is part of that. Will you say a little bit about somatic experiencing? Could you say a little bit about what that represents and maybe how that is similar or different than some of the other body work? Yeah, Peter did a lot of research before he came out with somatic experiencing. And he did research on animals in the wild and when they had been threatened and went through a cycle of surviving that threat. And he wondered why they don't really have much PTSD and we do. He explored the different ways in which we cope with that particular threat response and ways in which we end up with a very dysregulated nervous system. And his trainings have been open to many different types of healers, body workers, psychotherapists, chiropractors, there's MDs in the training. Peter's, um, he's very unique and special. He's kind of the midwife of the autonomic nervous system. And when you watch him work, he can track the various things that are going on. And his model is get a person into a little bit of window of tolerance, a little bit of activation where the sympathetic nervous system starts to get a little bit activated, and then just work with a small piece of it and then bring them back into their body, into kind of a down-regulated state, into the parasympathetic, and then track that in like micro tracking manner. And then if you do that enough, what happens is you gradually discharge the defensive energy that was contained under the disassociational break or lid that was put on. What I love about Peter is he's done a lot of work in the physiology of it. So it's really nice stuff. And in the trainings you get, everyone that I know in the training, they love it because you're a guinea pig in in many of the trainings. And all of a sudden you're crying or something's happening and you're realizing, wow, I didn't know I had trauma from that car crash or trauma from that accident. So I've incorporated it. And while it's great for single incident events, it's also very good for early trauma because dissociation is the primary defense in early trauma. The child doesn't have a fight or flight capacity. They just dissociate then that dissociation becomes a layer and they don't even know that they are. And their parents just think this is the personality. Describe that a little bit more for the listeners that might be less in tune to dissociation, because I think that's really important. An infant can't fight. They can't flee. Yeah. An infant can't really protect themselves. They can't run. They might come out agitated and angry, but they really can't fight. So what they do to cope with inundation and things happening to them that are overwhelming is they just check out, they dissociate. Peter calls it a freeze response. Like I had birth trauma and I went into a freeze. So by the time I got home after 10 days, my mom said, you're the one of the most cooperative babies of all the children. All the other ones are difficult, right? You were the one that was so calm. I loved you. I was in a disassociated state. There was a reaction that I couldn't have because I didn't have the capacity in my own nervous system until my son got born and a nurse came into me before they were going to do it and said, we're going to take your son away from your wife. And I looked at them because I had birth trauma and I was taken away from my mom and I looked at her and I said it in such a way like, no, you're not, that she burst out crying and left. 
And my wife said, go talk to that woman and call your mother and find out what the hell happened to you. And what it was, it activated a self-protective response. You know how some people can't get to protecting themselves, but if the same thing happened to their kid, they would have a really strong response. And that response came through. That often happens that as the trauma that happened to you and your children reach that developmental age of something that happened to you, it could be so triggering to be really aware that what's happening in your body is likely a response to what happened to you about that same developmental age. And associational patterns occur in ways, Peter's got quite an interesting series of trainings in his eye of the needle trainings. For example, working with surgeries and anesthetic and working with different things that happened to you early on that were overwhelming. And you can see somebody and then all of a sudden they're gone, but they almost can fake it. They're dissociating, but you don't know it. Or you bring up a subject matter, you ask them to do something, and then they go into kind of adaptive responses. If it's early material, it's really dissociation. That's my clinical experience. I'm not standing for any particular school of thought. So a lot of people are entering the work with the body through somatic experiencing, and it gives you a good background. The difference is it's not a school of psychotherapy per se. It was developed to deal with shock trauma in the body. It's a very good program. And it was developed to be integrated in a lot of the body work. Like you're saying, it's not that you're only doing body work. All of this work is very integrated in the connection and the relationship and the therapeutic work that you're doing with a client. Absolutely. It's sort of like EMDR is another one of those programs, which is a technique. They want to be a form of psychotherapy. People do it. But do you understand the personality structure of the person? What types of traumas happened? Because one of the things that happens, and I have a pet peeve, everybody focuses on attachment. And I work with attachment in a body way. And it's really, really important. But there are other developmental stages. How about feeling good about yourself? How about separating? How about protesting? How about integrating your, your sexuality and your sensuality to be open and loving and feel free in that way? That's not an attachment issue. You can work it better if you have secure attachment, because if you don't, it ends up messing up other developmental stages. In bioenergetics, it's more of a complete program. A lot of times people say, you were in bioenergetics and are you hitting the bed and screaming and all that? I go, no, 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 I don't do any of that. Bioenergetics back in the 70s was the only place that I could go to with my modified version of how to do it because it was the biggest school of psychotherapy for the body. So on the West Coast, Bob Hilton, who was one of my trainers, he was like for the relationship. He really focused on the relationship. He was almost like a self-psychologist, like a Rogerian therapist. And then he would follow the client and then work with the body. And I got a lot of training in that. You had to have so much trust, right? Like that's what's developing in these relationships to be able to really open up, like the example of the therapy with the woman that you were talking about, for her to feel safe with you, to go into that position that created so much vulnerability, and that she had such a deep level of trust in that relationship to be able to open up in that aspect to you. You know what, I could talk to you all day. Um, We're going to have to come to a wrap, but we could talk on difference between dissociation and repression too. That would be interesting. We're going to go ahead and do that. Go ahead and tap into that because I think that that's an important distinction. Before we wrap up, I think the listeners would love to hear that. Well, this only comes from working with clients. It feels to me that when a muscle, when a muscle starts to constrict in order to stop an impulse that was normal and natural, when you tighten the muscle to conform, constrict the impulse, 
Usually it happens at the time when that muscle is being innervated, the nerve is myelinated, it's coming under conscious control. So that one is sort of like a brake pedal, like, ooh, I'm scared and I don't want to do that. I can feel myself constricting. Okay. I can feel my tight throat. Oh my gosh. You know, and that's a little more like repression. It's like you can ease it off the gas pedal and then on the gas pedal. You can put on the brake or let off the brake and it has more flexibility and it forms over time and you kind of have more consciousness and awareness of it. Dissociation is, I think of it this way, it's crazy, but let's say you're, you're standing in your Sunday dress on a curb and somebody comes by and there's a puddle of water and splashes all the water on your dress and then you go bury it and you think, oh, it's ruined and then you go find a new dress or you find your mommy and she gives you a new clothing, okay? That's kind of regression. It gives an, it back and forth. The association is you're standing on a curb and the truck that went by jumps the curb and hits you. The association is the body goes into a conservational state and it stores all of the various facets of the experience in different parts of the brain and you don't have access to it unless you enter it working in the nervous system. And a flashback is just when one sliver or one part of an event emerges at a time when a cue or a tell or a sign of that shows up. If somebody pointed a finger at you and then hit you and you're talking to somebody and then they point a finger at you, even if it's mildly not threatening, if you see that finger, you will associate and go right back into trauma time and think that you're going to now get hit and then you'll respond. You don't see that much with repression. I don't. I see repression as, yeah, you scare me because you're a nice guy or you say this, but I don't trust men. I can feel it. Where do you feel it? You know, dissociation is a different creature and it happens when you get overwhelmed, but then babies get overwhelmed. It works in the same particular way. And so you have to know the trauma state of your client. Like people have PTSD trauma. I mean, I spend a lot of time doing non-touch work, just getting them to feel and track in their body using mindful experiences going very slowly. I do not do deep body work, expressive work with people with PTSD, never had. And so depending on the person's issue and what they bring forward is how I work. What would you recommend to listeners who do struggle with PTSD types of symptoms where they have the hypervigilant responses. Like, What would you recommend in terms of what type of therapy to seek out? So if somebody has that, at this point, I would probably have them go to traumahealing.com, Peter's website, and I'd have them look up and try to locate somebody who had completed the training in their area and could do somatic experiencing. You know, you can get two or three numbers and call them and talk to the person and sense how you feel with them because it's very comprehensive. People address it with EMDR, but EMDR can bring up a lot of stuff rather quickly. So you have to do a protocol of resourcing, creating safety in a variety of ways. So when you do the work and the material starts to come up, because if the material comes up and it's too charged, the association will just take care of you by going, well, person will go, I can remember never having anger until I worked through my own terror, but I would get angry when people say, hit the bed, I'd hit the bed. And they'd say, oh, you're getting angry. You feel connected to it? And I'd say, yeah, I was never connected to it. 
I was doing it because a good therapist in training gets angry. And, but when it finally did come up, then it was scary because lots of things were triggering me. I had no control, but I needed to let that come through and get to the other side of it and, and kind of ride that wave till it was completed a little bit. And then it was like, I'll never be scared again. I don't have to punch anybody. I just know that I can before it was frozen. So I always felt, you know, don't push me or, you know, like, don't push me like I could hurt you. I don't, you don't have to hurt anybody. You just have to have the capacity to do it. Right. Does that make sense? Like when you ground your aggression. What about somebody struggling with more on the anxiety scale in terms of like OCD or chronic panic attacks? Or maybe those would be different. What type of body work would you experience? What type of therapy or would you recommend that? Any of the things that show up in a regular psychotherapist's office can be treated. I left out Pat Ogden's work, sensory motor, and she's very similar to Peter, and she has a very good understanding of the nervous system. There's a variety of different people that could work with it. You know, what you'd want to find is somebody that's trained, let's say, in somatic experiencing, bioenergetics, sensory experiencing. You just want to find somebody like that you know, that is a psychotherapist. That's the, the critical thing because there's a lot of body workers that are trained and some of them are just outstanding. When you have anxiety, like somebody comes in, they have panic attacks. And so we go very slowly. And then I do a lot of psychoeducation. This is in your nervous system. When this particular stimulator comes up, it's associated with a trauma. You're having a really strong reaction. That reaction takes over, kidnaps you. The amygdala runs wild. You can't inhibit its fear response. And then there you are having a panic attack. So let's just rewind it and go back and let's talk about what it is. And then if you deconstruct it and then lay out what you think will happen if it comes up again, this is what you'll do with your breathing. This is what you'll feel. This is what the sweating will be. This is what you'll start to think. This is what will happen. So what I'm trying to do is get them more and more anchored in their body and in their sensation and awareness. And then as they do that over time, what happens is it slows the process down. Being disembodied, meaning not being in your body, means that the label you put on the experience you're having that you're, you haven't taken apart and really understood in an empirical, phenomenological, immediate, here's a witness that can look at all the subtle parts of it. It gives it power and control. So that's why when somebody came to my office and they had a panic attack, I was grateful because by the end of the session, she wasn't quite clear what I did, but she said, it's gone. And what I did is I brought her with everything I could into her body to feel those things. And I have people that said, you know, first time you did that, I thought this is going to make it worse. I didn't want to come back, but I did feel better. And I read an article that you gave me and I could see it. And then over time it comes down and then they're going, thank you. I feel so much better though somebody is coming with panic attacks, you know, so often they don't have that in the office. They go through a period of panic attacks that's happening right. out in the world and right. they're telling you about it, right? They have, I had right. three panic attacks since I've seen you last. So they can tell about the experience. It usually comes out at a time when they weren't expecting it and they don't have an association with it. How do you work with that? What you want to do is when somebody is not in the office, they need to kind of read about panic attacks. That would be my first and foremost. And then they need to maybe do a little bit of reading about the, the nervous system, the autonomic nervous system. Because in the autonomic nervous system, when it's dysregulated, what's happening is you're getting triggered and you're going into a state of activation. And it's hard to put the brake on that. 
And so what happens is, is that they get caught up in trying to avoid or maneuver around it in a particular way when they actually need to slow down. And so I always tell them, I need you to do your homework, mindfulness homework, when you're not panicky. And then I need you to have small experiences with it and then go back to your mindfulness and see if that works. So what I'm doing is I'm trying to get them to be more embodied when they want to get away from their body because they feel like their body is going to die. So I explain that when you have a threat response, the first thing you feel like is I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. You know, and when I had a panic attack once, too much coffee, not enough food, had the flu, three cups of coffee, I had my heart started beating, I had a panic attack. And I was running around thinking I'm having a heart attack. Somebody said, you're having a panic attack, sit down. They gave me some medication and I thought, wow, is that what people feel? That's scary as hell. So when they have that panic attack, you're going to go very slowly. You're not going to activate it. The, the person that came in the office, I had a relationship with and they were there and they said, I'm starting to have one right now. I haven't, I've been coming for six, eight months and I haven't, I haven't. I said, okay. And then we could work with it a little bit. I hear you. It's also so often needing to take the panic out of the panic attack. A panic attack is just a bunch of words about sensations and things that are going on in your body. And unless you're embodied or connected or embedding yourself a little bit more in the actual experience of it, the more that you're aware of it, the more likely it is, oh, there's an alternative. Like if I feel tense in my body, is there any other place in your body feel relaxed? My feet, go to there. What's that like? Well, my feet feel, I don't know, they feel stretchy a little bit. Okay, notice that. Stay with it a little bit. What's happening with your chest? Oh, it's a little less, Bob. So what you're doing is, you know, you're pendulating in and then back out. Everybody does that. Go to the left brain, the right brain with EMDR. Everybody does that to kind of not let the amygdala hijack the system and then go into full-on terror. Because what you're re-experiencing is a part of it that you don't know. Everybody who has a panic attack, there's something about it. Well, I could talk to you all day, but thank you so much. I think you've brought just a great deal of wisdom to our listeners today. So I really, really appreciate you being here. appreciate it. And if somebody wants to get a hold of you, where would they find you? They can find me at drbobcof at gmail.com. Okay. Thanks. Thanks so much. Bye. Thanks for listening, y'all. For anyone that feels like this has been helpful, take a moment to rate and review us. That really, really, really does help us. And all of the great information that you heard from our interview today, as I mentioned, will be in our show notes. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you around the bend. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson. 